Welcome to the third and final look back at Get Real Health Season 1. If you tuned into the other two, you know what to expect. If not, buckle up for a bit of speed dating. I'll be taking you through the last 10 episodes of Season 1, recorded earlier this year. In about two or three minutes per episode, I'll share what I thought were the most important messages from my stellar guests, along with memorable quotes and personal reflections. As always, you'll get to look behind the curtain to see how science is done and equip yourself to make sense of the next health headline. Today's topics include hormone replacement therapy, diabetes prevention and management, weight stigma, intuitive eating, obesity, and fighting misinformation. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Episode 19 was a conversation about hormone replacement therapy with Dr. Avram Blooming and Carol Tavris. Dr. Blooming is a hematologist and medical oncologist who spent 40 years treating women with breast cancer. His passion for understanding the risks and benefits of hormone replacement therapy was inspired by his wife's breast cancer and the menopausal challenges that ensued. Dr. Tavris is a rock star social psychologist. She's also a feminist, skeptic, and pseudoscience buster. Together, they co-wrote a book called Estrogen Matters, a book that strives to help women make an informed decision about the risks and benefits of hormone therapy. I can't recommend this book enough for anyone looking to boost their understanding of this complicated topic. I'll share with you three messages from our conversation. Number one, the risks associated with hormone therapy as presented by the Women's Health Initiative study in 2002 were not only overstated at the time, but have not stood the test of time. Number two, the benefits of hormone replacement therapy for women undergoing menopause and beyond are well-documented. They include heart health and bone health, two things that women need to take extremely seriously. Number three, The debate really is about risk versus benefit. Nobody argues that there isn't a benefit and nobody says there is zero risk. The question is whether or not the risks outweigh the benefits. Dr. Blooming asserts that for many women, the risks will be much smaller than the benefits. In fact, he particularly hammers on overstated concerns about breast cancer and cites numerous studies finding that breast cancer survivors can even take hormone replacement therapy safely. So where I sit now as a woman who has not gone through menopause yet and is contemplating what I'm going to do in the coming years, I feel like I'm honestly leaning towards doing it. This conversation led me to conclude that many of the risks have been overstated and many of the benefits have been understated. And we need to consider not only the short-term consequences, but the long-term consequences of whether or not we take hormone replacement therapy. There's another important layer to this conversation that I really hope I can convey briefly here or that you can listen to the episode to learn more about. And it really has to do with how science is done or should be done. I really like when Dr. Blooming said that good science is about trying to prove yourself wrong. And what this saga from the WHI study shows is that scientists are people. Once they put a theory out there, they often tend to be biased towards trying to defend that theory. That is not how science is optimally done. Another quote that I really wanted to share and hope you'll chew on is when Dr. Tavra shared a discussion with a woman who argued that 
hormone replacement therapy was not a good idea because it's not natural. Her response is that it's also not natural for women to live 40 years after menopause. Give that some thought. Episode 20 is a continued conversation about menopausal hormone replacement therapy. This time, Dr. Blooming and I dug in a bit more detail into some of the lingo and all the different options that women might be facing if they're considering taking some sort of hormonal therapy. The big takeaways for me on this one were, number one, that the mode of delivery matters. Personally, I came away partial to patches over pills. Number two is that Blooming cautioned against false claims surrounding bioidenticals. As he explained, it's really a marketing word that he honestly finds frustrating the way that it's being used. There's a lot of nuance on this, and I encourage you to dig more deeply into this topic if this is something you're already taking or considering taking, because the distinction that needs to be made that Blooming explained is whether a compound is regulated or not. Is it approved that particular formulation by the FDA or Health Canada, whatever governing body that is? You can actually take fully human estrogens, but in an approved format. This is different from a compounded bioidentical that you might get from a pharmacy. And this is a problem, as Dr. Blooming articulates, for any medication. There's no quality control if something is not approved and regulated by a safety body like Health Canada or FDA. You honestly don't know what dose you are getting. And that has the potential of being less safe than a regulated compound. Dr. Blumey and I also dove further into some of the science of why the WHI study that derailed hormone therapy use is actually inapplicable to many women who are considering taking hormone therapy. And I encourage you to listen to our conversation to learn more about the details. It's too much to get into right here. I'll leave you with a resource, particularly on the topic of bioidenticals. There's a great publication from the British Menopause Society. If you just Google British Menopause Society and bioidenticals, you'll see a consensus statement from relevant experts about which distinction really matters when it comes to hormone replacement therapy. Episode 21 was a conversation with Dr. Nicola Guess about managing type 2 diabetes through diet. Dr. Nicola Guess is a world expert on how nutrition affects the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes. She brings both a research and a patient-centric view to the discussion because she's trained both as a scientist and as a dietitian. Dr. Guest currently runs a private clinical practice as a registered dietitian focused on diabetes. So the heart of our discussion was around why does diet matter and which diet is best for diabetes management. It turns out that there really is no one best diet for diabetes management. No surprise, that tends to be the answer to almost any big, complex scientific question that there isn't one single answer. She describes that the best diet for you is the one that helps you control your weight because the adipose tissue in our bodies is actually metabolically active. This is something that we touched on earlier and it does play a real role in the disease process. So reducing excess adipose tissue does itself, no matter what diet that was, whether it was keto or whether it's low fat, whether it's vegan, whatever it is, whatever dietary strategy that works for you to control your energy balance. Now, she also points out that even moderate weight loss can be clinically meaningful. So to not be dissuaded by feeling like you have to transform your body in dramatic ways to impact the course of diabetes. 
As we explored the dietary arena, I was excited to get Dr. Guess's take on carbohydrates. This is always a hot button issue in the diet world and even more so in the diabetic arena. Her perspective is that radically low-carb diets like keto are a good option for some patients, but they are clearly not the only viable path. She has seen many other patients do well on a wide variety of diets. Her go-to recommendation is to think about building a balanced plate loaded with nutrient-dense, fiber-rich foods. She thinks in terms of ratios, so about a quarter primary proteins, a quarter secondary proteins, and then the other half primarily fruits and veggies. By primary protein, she means foods where most of the nutrition comes from protein. And in the plant-based world, your best bets are tofu, seitan, or some of the new meat alternatives. On the secondary protein, that would be beans, lentils, other legumes. I have to point out here that this half a plate of fruits and veggies recommendation, it comes up again and again from dietitians and nutrition researchers with all sorts of different backgrounds and focuses. So it is really a common thread that you can't go wrong taking this approach. And in fact, personally, as I build my meals, I often start with the veggies and then I think, what protein do I want to have on the side with that? So I'm a big fan of the super salad meal concept. So I'll build a massive salad bowl and then I'll think, well, what do I I want to add on top? So one of my favorite things is to just add a bean burger or another veggie burger patty on top, or also, you know, get some of that secondary protein by sprinkling in some chickpeas or seeds or, or nuts on top of my salad. So sometimes building that plate doesn't have to mean thinking about the protein first. It can be thinking about the veggies first, and then what protein might go nicely with that combination of vegetables that I'm having. Episode 22 was a continued conversation with Dr. Nicola Guess. This time we focused on preventing type 2 diabetes. We talked about how diabetes develops, why it's become so common, how we can estimate our risk, and how we can bring down our risk. There's a lot of bad news when we look at the global picture of diabetes, but there is some good news as well. First, we can typically see diabetes develop slowly over the course of years. Second, we are pretty good at identifying people who are on the brink of tipping from pre-diabetes to diabetes. Third, we do have tools to stop diabetes development in its tracks. To get a sense of your own type 2 diabetes risk, I recommend checking out an online calculator. They have a great one at Diabetes Canada as well as at Diabetes UK. These calculators lay out very clearly what the relevant risk factors are. They include age, ethnicity, family history, physical activity, body mass index, and waist circumference. As Dr. Guess explained, waist circumference really matters because the fat that sits around your middle is known to be more metabolically harmful. In terms of reducing risk, the most powerful tools we have are weight management and physical activity. Of course, these things are often easier said than done. When asked what's the best diet for diabetes prevention, Dr. Guess gave the same answer to her earlier question about diabetes management. It really is about keeping your body weight as close to a healthy range as possible. She said there's no one magic way of eating that is perfect for everyone. Everyone has unique preferences and life circumstances. So she recommends, again, as with diabetes management, to aim for a balanced plate, one that includes a lot of fruits and veggies, maybe half the plate, and the other half the plate, including healthy sources of protein, including both primary proteins and 
protein-rich beans, legumes, lentils, or what she calls secondary proteins. She encourages her clients to choose mostly plant-based sources, both for environment and health reasons. Given Dr. Guess's pro-protein stance, I couldn't help but asking her about the area of plant-based meat alternatives, one that I'm very interested in. And I was glad to learn that she and I are very much on the same page. Number one, we shouldn't dismiss these as unhealthy simply because they're not natural. In fact, this distinction that anything processed is bad and anything natural is good is far too overly simplistic. In reality, whether it's meat or a plant-based alternative, we should be looking at each food in isolation to evaluate its nutritional upsides and downsides. So if you're shopping for plant-based meal alternatives, do keep an eye on saturated fat and sodium as these can vary greatly from one product to another. The last bit of conversation I wanted to share was about adherence or staying the course. We live in a society where the standard Western diet is not very healthy. So in many ways, you have to be comfortable being abnormal to have a healthier diet. This is hard enough in the short term, but it becomes really hard in the long term. So we had an interesting discussion about how to stay the course in the long term. And Dr. Guess was really clear that many patients do need ongoing support, but that the form that this takes can vary greatly and every person might benefit from a different type of support to follow, you know, a new way of eating. One person may benefit from having, you know, friends or other people in their family that they are in a back and forth with for accountability. For some people, it's an online community. Others benefit from tracking apps, pedometers, others from reward systems. You've got to find what works for you. One more comment that I can't help but add here on eating well for life is that I think you really need to find joy in healthier foods. And that's one thing that I try and do with my website and a little bit with my social media is sharing some of the ways that my family eats. We eat this way, yes, because it's healthy, but also because it's delicious. I don't want myself or my kids to be choking down healthy foods that they aren't enjoying. So I'm always happy to share my ideas with you. And I hope you'll check out my website, my newsletter, and my social media for a lot of the plant-based foods that my family enjoys. Episode 23 was a conversation with Dr. Gabrielle Fundaro about diet culture and the anti-diet movement. Dr. Fundaro is a certified health and sports nutrition coach with a PhD in human nutrition, foods, and exercise. She shares a lot of thoughtful perspectives on her website and on social media at Vitamin PhD. What I really like about Dr. Fundaro is that she brings a very intellectual but also compassionate view to the discussion. And she finds a way to, as she put it, sort of bridge the gap between two camps that seem to compete, but actually have some common ground. The two camps that she tries to reconcile in some of her work is the notion that all diets are bad and the notion that everyone should strive to be thin. Both of those are extreme statements. So where's the middle ground that we can agree on? And I guess the biggest takeaway from her is that what we can potentially agree on is to focus on the win-win, to focus on healthy habits and less on the scale. Things like moving more and choosing higher nutrient density foods, those are things that are going to be a positive impact on your life, independent of whether or not they move the scale. A couple of other nuggets from this conversation that I wanted to share is the reminder that this notion that's presented to us of an ideal body is really quite arbitrary. And all you need to do is look back in time and across cultures to recognize this. 
Dr. Fundaro does give in our conversation an interesting historical perspective on how thin emerged as a desirable thing. I also like how Dr. Fundaro emphasized the importance of taking a broader view of health beyond body mass index or BMI, for example, and even beyond just physical health overall. And that when we talk about what it is to be healthy, we need to think about our mental health just as much as our physical. This episode also provides a brief introduction to two important concepts that I wanted to share with you. The first concept is healthism. Healthism is a mindset whereby we judge people's worth according to their health. It's one that sees health as a virtue that we are morally obligated to pursue, no matter what the cost. It also places responsibility for health squarely on the individual. The second concept I want to touch on is the health at every size movement, often called haze. This movement is sometimes misunderstood as saying, screw it, health doesn't matter. In reality, according to the original Hayes website, this movement is about a few things. Advancing social justice, creating an inclusive and respectful community, and supporting people of all sizes in finding compassionate ways to take care of themselves. These two concepts are increasingly influencing my thinking, and I encourage you to learn more about them. Episode 24 was a continuation of my conversation with Dr. Gabrielle Fundaro. We talked about intuitive eating and other weight-neutral approaches. Intuitive eating is essentially what many people would call normal eating. It is eating when your body needs foods and stopping when you feel good. There's, of course, a lot more to it, but Unfortunately, many of us have lost touch with normal eating because of diet culture, because we are constantly told to eat in a certain way or eat as little as possible and starve our bodies in the pursuit of the thin ideal. So Dr. Fondaro gets into more nuance on what intuitive eating actually is, how it came to be, including the basic principles, steps that one would follow to pursue this strategy. A couple of top tips that I really took away from this Number one is to identify your personal narrative and challenge it. So if you have been sort of a victim of diet culture and have certain beliefs about yourself, your eating habits, your body, to really start by understanding what those are, and then you can begin to challenge them. And often that process involves rebuilding trust with yourself. In the context of trust, Dr. Fundaro shared an interesting and somewhat entertaining story about peanut butter and how that was one of her trigger foods that she worked through as she rebuilt trust in herself. A quote that really stuck with me from Dr. Fundaro's personal story was the following, I can't exist in this self-imposed food prison anymore. So the journey for intuitive eating starts with that type of thinking, just recognizing the toll that diet culture plays and essentially breaking up with these messages that we are constantly inundated with about how we should look and what we need to do to achieve that. A resource that I recommend checking out to learn more about intuitive eating is the original Intuitive Eating Founders website, and it's called intuitiveeating.org. Episode 25 was a conversation with Dr. Lindsay Leininger about making sense of health headlines. Dr. Leininger is a passionate and talented science communicator who helped found Dear Pandemic, a social media platform for digestible science-based answers to questions about COVID-19. And that's just her side hustle. She is trained in public policy and teaches MBA students at the Tuck School of Business how to use data to guide health policy. In our conversation, we discuss a variety of strategies for separating fact from fiction, 
While the conversation centers on COVID-19, it applies to all health headlines you might encounter. At the heart of our conversation, Dr. Leininger and I discussed three types of literacy, and we took turns sharing some tips for each of them. Number one is scientific or biological literacy. These are just basic foundational things about biology that can help you make sense of health headlines. So for example, understanding that you really need to take animal studies with a huge grain of salt because bench to bedside is a huge leap. So just don't get either too excited or too freaked out when all we have is animal data. The second type of literacy was information literacy or media literacy. So understanding really how media works and, for example, looking beyond the headlines to always read the full article, to look for citations, to understand who was the source, were they credible, that sorts of things, basic tools for pressure testing an article. Number three, we spoke about data literacy, which is really Dr. Leininger's strength. One tip here was to be mindful of base rates. So, for example, if you see a clinical trial and you see something happen to one in 100 patients, you need to know if people weren't taking the drug, would that still happen at a rate of one in 100 before you can attribute it to the drug? So always, whenever you see an event happen, you need to understand how often does that event happen, even without that drug or that vaccine or whatever it is that's being tested. Dr. Leininger also dug into what she calls the 3C framework that she uses to make sense of any new headline or study. That is, what's the comparator? Have we tested the possibility of just a chance finding? And are we looking at the right context? Is the context of the study applicable to the real world? This is too much to summarize, obviously, in this little soundbite here. So I hope you'll check out the full conversation. I'll leave you with a quote from Dr. Leininger on what science is and what it's not. Science is not a fixed set of facts. It is a method. It is a way of obtaining information. And honestly, the people who do the best science are those who are willing to change their minds as they learn new information. And you'll see this amongst all of my guests, particularly on the topic of COVID. People are willing to change their positions as the information evolves. I also loved Dr. Leininger's quote that misinformation is like a hydra because it keeps coming back. So anyone who's worked in the field of fighting misinformation knows that you have to be persistent. All of us have to keep fighting this fight and not give up. Dr. Leininger recommended a couple of resources to help boost your scientific literacy. You can check out News Literacy. You can check out NPR, Goats and Soda. And I highly recommend Dear Pandemic. They have over 900 questions and answers on their website, including a couple from me because I did a guest contribution after this conversation with Dr. Leininger. Episode 26 was a continued conversation with Dr. Lindsay Leininger. We discussed vaccine hesitancy and pandemic denial. Perhaps the most important message from this conversation is the importance of everybody pitching in to the fight against misinformation. You don't have to be an expert to have an impact. You just have to share selectively. You have to amplify good information and pause before you share any questionable information. In this conversation, Dr. Leininger shared tips for engaging respectfully with those who have been misinformed. For example, someone who doesn't believe in COVID or doesn't believe that vaccines are safe or effective. The golden rule in this whole arena is to listen before you speak. If it's already set up as an adversarial conversation where I'm going to win you over, you're just not going to make any progress. You have to be willing to honestly listen to where someone's coming from and truly understand their concerns. 
Then it comes to what she calls an empathy sandwich. So lead with love, lead with listening and understanding and honoring that this person truly has an intention, in most cases, to make a good decision. Then you serve up a fact, something about vaccines or the COVID pandemic statistics or whatever it is that might be relevant to what someone's concerns were. And then you close with compassion. So again, honoring that the person you're speaking with has good intentions, has been trying to protect themselves and their family and trying to seek out all the information they can get their hands on. Another couple of considerations when you're engaging these kinds of conversations are to find the right messenger or personal connection. You know, someone may not be inclined to listen to the same experts as you. So you might want to help direct them towards, for example, the nurse or physician or church leader who this person might resonate with. Another important piece of advice is to be patient. You're very rarely going to change someone's mind in one conversation. So know that this is slow, hard work. So last but definitely not least is pick your battles. Know when to walk away. Pick your battles. Who are you going to speak with? Is this person interested in listening or not interested at all? Are they just going to dig in their heels? And if you are engaged and you thought maybe this person was open-minded, but maybe they're not, just know when to walk away because it is extremely emotionally draining to battle someone who is not interested at all in listening. So be selective about who you even engage with on these conversations. It's just not worth your emotional energy. Episode 27 was a conversation with Dr. Fatima Stanford about obesity causes and treatments. Dr. Stanford is a physician specializing in obesity medicine who has treated countless families with obesity in her practice at Mass General Hospital. She is also an internationally recognized scientist, educator, and policymaker in her work at Harvard Medical School. In our conversation, she explained why she believes that obesity should be viewed and treated and talked about as a disease process. In fact, the American Medical Association did classify obesity as a disease in 2013. Dr. Stanford and I had an interesting discussion about the underlying causes of obesity, and we dug a little bit into this term, the obesogenic environment, because the biggest change in the last several decades is not our genes, it is our environment. And she was very adamant to point out, as she has in other discussions, that today's environment, it's not just the supersizing and it's not just the reduced activity, it's also changes in sleep and in medications, and in stress. Thus, obesity is really a multifactorial disease. And in order to treat it, you need to understand what factors are most in play for a given individual. In fact, because she's treated so many different patients, she's really witnessed firsthand that the response to the same treatment can be extremely variable across patients. So we just shouldn't expect what worked for one person to work for another person. When we narrowed in on eating patterns and what's the best diet, her answer is simple. It is the way of eating that you can follow for the rest of your life. She asks her patients always, can you see yourself eating this way in two years, in five years, in 10 years? If not, this is not a good strategy for you. Dr. Stanford also believes that we need to destigmatize metabolic bariatric surgery because In her opinion, this really is the best alternative for some patients, particularly if they have tried every possible other intervention under the sun. We spoke briefly about exercise, and I just wanted to point out that her message was very consistent with what I've heard from others and read in the literature, that exercise is by no means going to 
guarantee weight loss. It's not a particularly powerful tool for dropping a lot of weight, but it is phenomenal for weight maintenance. And we know this, at least as a correlation, that in national weight loss registries that track people who have kept substantial weight off for years and years and years, they almost always incorporate exercise into their weekly routines. I asked Dr. Stanford, what's the number one message that she wants to get out there to her patients and to their families? And she didn't hesitate. Her answer is to stop being so hard on yourself. Stop blaming yourself for this disease process. It is not all your fault. Episode 28 was a continued conversation with Dr. Stanford. This time we drilled in on weight bias and weight stigma. So what is it? Where does it come from? And how can we work together to beat it? As she points out, weight bias follows very closely behind race bias as one of the most common biases in our culture. Now, the big difference is that at this time, weight stigma seems to be socially acceptable. And she really probes us to recognize and question why we continue to portray obese people in the media with these caricatures of eating pizza all day, every day, and sitting on the couch, which are completely inaccurate. I have to tell you, ever since I read her book and had this conversation, I really am tuned into this. And it really is remarkable how often we see people with obesity portrayed in really negative lights in the media. A little personal anecdote on this one is that after thinking about this due to Dr. Stanford's book, my children brought home a worksheet, my kindergarten kids, in which they were lining up different words with different pictures. And next to the word fat was a clown. The fat character is always either funny or depressed. I sat on this and wondered whether I should do anything or say anything. And after this conversation, I actually decided to email the teachers and say something about that worksheet that I didn't really like the way that the word fat was being used. Interestingly, both teachers responded independently that they also hesitated before sending out the worksheet because it was a standardized worksheet, that the worksheet gave them pause, but that they just hadn't taken a step to take action and they were glad that I'd spoken up. So I really think that all of us can make a difference and just speak up when we see these little small instances of weight bias, weight stigma manifest. Dr. Stanford also mentioned some shocking studies suggesting that our weight bias can kick in as early as 36 months to have these negative associations with larger bodies and positive associations with smaller bodies. And so we had a conversation about what can we do about this? And what I really took away from it is that a lot of times it's not necessarily that we are actively saying negative things about people in larger bodies, but that we are maybe not saying enough positive things. So the absence of positive statements about so-and-so being beautiful or amazing in some other way and attributing those things to people in larger bodies as much as we do to people in smaller bodies. To understand whether or not you have a weight bias, I highly recommend checking out the Harvard Implicit Bias website. They have links to a number of different tests you can do to check whether you have biases you may or may not be aware of on a wide variety of topics, including body size. Thanks for tuning in to this look back at episodes 19 to 27 of the show. That brings my season one highlights to a close. I hope that these speed dating episodes helped you get the most from my amazing guests. I honestly learned a lot by re-listening to them, even though I was obviously very engaged in the conversation the first time around. 
I'd love to hear from you about what you learned and what you'd like to hear more of. I'll be back again soon to kick off another season of interviews and have already lined up several remarkable guests. Once again, I'll be prioritizing female guests because it's part of my mission to amplify the work of awesome women in science. Thankfully, there's no shortage of women who offer exactly what I'm looking for, deep expertise and a passion for sharing knowledge with others. As a side note, I've developed a bit of a habit of recording two conversations per expert. I started this practice to make the most of the interview window that my guests offered me while ensuring that each episode is digestible in a single sitting. A friend of mine told me that my episodes are perfect for washing dishes and another told me it's great for her commute. I'd love to hear your feedback on the show and how it fits into your life. Don't worry, I won't be offended if you're multitasking while you're listening. I totally get it. If you appreciate my show, please share it with others or post a review. I look forward to connecting with you again soon. In the meantime, you can find me on social at Fueled by Science and you can check out my website at fueledbyscience.com to see my articles, family-friendly plant-based recipes and sign up for my newsletter. Thanks for listening.